As mentioned on last week's program, at the top of this program, we are somewhat fascinated by the story, which I did not know anything about, of Gareth Jones, a journalist who reported accurately what was taking place in Ukraine during what is now known as the Holodomor. An important sidelight to this terrible story of, of genocide is how it was reported or not reported. We mentioned on last week's program that back in 2003, the Nobel Prize Committee, or actually the Nobel Prize Board, had decided to take a look at the award they gave to Mr. Durante back in 1932. We quoted from that uh, statement, and we're going to do so again. The third paragraph notes, in its review of 13 articles, the board determined that Mr. Durante's 1931 work, measured by today's standards for foreign reporting, falls seriously short. In that regard, the board's view is similar to that of the New York Times itself and of some scholars who examined his 1931 reports. However, the board concluded there was no clear and convincing evidence of deliberate deception, the relevant standard, which caused us to pause and ask, why is that the relevant standard? You give somebody a prize for their reporting that turns out to be crap, and because he wasn't deliberately lying to you, you don't revoke the award, or at least you couldn't prove beyond any doubt that he was lying to you? This reminds us of what we had to say about Judith Miller and her bogus reporting on weapons of mass destruction, etc., 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 not so long ago here in the U.S., that also involving the America's paper of record, the New York Times. To its credit, the Times has backed away from um, the reporting of Walter Durante back in the 1930s. But uh, we don't think the way this has been dealt with is sufficient, which is why we decided to take up the cause today. I contacted a Ukrainian-American friend of mine to ask about some of this. He was very knowledgeable and steered me to Professor Timothy Snyder of Yale, a historian who has um, written at great length about this episode. And in fact, he's such a good speaker that we're going to go to him shortly and play for you about a 22-minute clip, which gives you the background of what led up to this genocide, with further commentary on how the world found out or did not find out about it. I do note that in the past week, the German government has just declared Joseph Stalin's mass starvation of Ukrainians a genocide. A Ronin Steinke writing in Süddeutsche Zeitung in Germany noted that 3.9 million Ukrainians starved to death from 1932 to 33 in a man-made famine that Stalin imposed to crush the Ukrainian national identity movement by carting off Ukrainian wheat to feed other Soviet regions. In that particular year, noted Mr. Steinke, they carried away everything edible, including livestock, pets, and the seed for next year's crops, and then prevented the desperate Ukrainians from fleeing. In declaring the Holodomor a genocide, Germany's parliament is officially confirming that there had been an independent Ukrainian people for more than a century, because genocide refers to the attempted extermination of a national group. This Ukrainian nationhood is exactly what Vladimir Putin and his war propagandists deny as they seek to absorb Ukraine back into Mother Russia. So yes, this stuff is um, relevant to today's headlines. And the idea of a propaganda war, you know, denying that what's going on is in fact going on, is something that is very much with us in the year 2022. In addition to Timothy Snyder, my Ukrainian-American friend put me on to Anne Applebaum, who we've quoted numerous times on this program and does excellent writing for The New Yorker and, and elsewhere. 
She too has written a book on this very topic and explained, we would remind you in painstaking detail about how Russiagate was going down before most people realized that Russiagate was going down. This whole story is not confined to uh, what Gareth Jones reported back in 1933. This takes us right up to the 21st century and Russian interference in an American election, which is what happened in 2016. And, you know, I think there were attempts to do it again in 2020. Versus this somewhat successful Russian effort to convince the world that they have good reasons for what they're doing in Ukraine. We would note that speaking about the German parliament's actions, a woman named Ella Kareva, writing in RIA Nosvoti, a Russian news outlet, said the following, The mass starvation in several Soviet states in the 1930s was certainly a tragedy with a colossal number of victims, but it was largely the result of Stalin's rapid and violent collectization of agriculture. And then points out that the Germans, too, stole Russian food to feed the Wehrmacht, adding the claim that at least 7 million Soviet citizens starved as a result, a stat I'd like to see verified. At any rate, let us get educated about what took place back in the 30s by playing for you about 20 minutes of a talk by Professor Timothy Snyder of Yale, which provides a lot of background data I think most of us uh, could use. So I mention this terrible famine of 1921 and 1922 to create a contrast. I also mention it because 1921 and 1922, for some people, such as Joseph Stalin, was a lesson. The lesson is that hunger is part of politics. Giving food and taking it away is a normal, as he sees it, part of politics. This is the kind of thing which simply happens in the world. This brings us to the late 1920s, when Joseph Stalin comes to power. The Soviet system, as some of you will know very well, but I will take some time anyway with it, the Soviet system is a system which works according to the following logic. In principle, this is a system which is meant to serve the working class. The working class in the system is represented by the Communist Party. The Communist Party is represented by a central committee, the central committee in turn by a Politburo, and the Politburo by the strongest personality on it. In the late 1920s, the strongest personality that asserted itself was that of Joseph Stalin. He asserted himself with a policy of collectivization. Now, collectivization may seem like a long, abstract word, but within that notion of collectivization, these awkward Russian communist words, collectivization, decolocization, hides a transformation of society and hides the aspiration to change what human life is like. What collectivization meant is that those who controlled land, farmers, people in places like Ukraine, who in the last couple of generations had managed to get control of a bit of private property for themselves, that all of these people would lose their land. Now, for those of you who are in cities and live in apartments, this may not strike you immediately as dramatic, but this was a time still in the history of the world where most people lived on the land. And in a place like Ukraine, which several people have mentioned already, the breadbasket of Europe. This was a place where most people still lived on the land, lived themselves and provided for others from the land. So the project of taking people by force away from the land and into a different kind of life is already dramatic enough. The idea that peasants should be treated as an enemy in a class war, which is Stalin's idea in 1928 and 1929, is already very dramatic. The idea that we will take all of the peasants who we believe are most successful and, and, and deprive them of their land is already a, a radical change. 
And this was a change that took place at the same time as the creation of the Gulag. Now, Gulag is another word from Soviet history that we should remember. The emergence of the Gulag, the large system of prison and concentration camps in Kazakhstan, in northern Russia, this system is created in the late 1920s. And the first large groups of people who are sent to the Gulag are precisely peasants. About 300,000 peasants from Soviet Ukraine are sent to the Gulag in 1928, 1929, and 1930. This creates a situation for them in which they have two very bad choices, and choice might be too strong of a word. If you are seen to be prosperous, or if you are seen to be resisting the collective farm, then you will be sent to the Gulag. But if you stay in Ukraine, you will lose your farm, you'll be assigned to a collective farm, you'll be governed instead of by yourself, you'll be governed by the local officials at a machine tractor station, and, and that will be your life. I take it that this system as I describe it in this abstract way seems decisively uh, tragic enough. But what we now have to ask is, what happens to the food supply as the system is put into practice? So, in 1930, in the first weeks of 1930, most of Ukraine, most of Soviet Ukraine, is collectivized. Um, it's collectivized in a terrifyingly quick way. It's collectivized by force. Tens of thousands of Ukrainians run across the border to Romania or usually to Poland. There's massive resistance to collectivization. The, the Soviet secret police records one million acts of resistance to collectivization in early 1930. And so Stalin pulls back. He gives a famous speech, which is called Dizzy with Success, in which he says, this has been going too well, we should slow down. In 1931, collectivization then moves forward, but by a clever, more indirect way. It moves forward by extreme taxation. If you don't join the collective farm, your farm is taxed so much that you can't keep it up. Um, it's, 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 it's created by seizures of the seed grain. In other words, if you don't join the collective farm, I will take the seed that you need to plant your crop next year. And so the second time, in 1931, collectivization actually takes place. The expectation was that the collective farm would work as well as private agriculture. So the Soviet state set a target for how much grain they would take from peasants, which was based on the very good harvest of 1930. In 1931, the harvest was much poorer, a bit because the weather was bad, but mostly because the chaos of collectivization itself had meant that farming simply wasn't as productive. And it's in late 1931 that the starvation begins. By June of 1932, Stalin himself uses the word Golod. Stalin himself acknowledges that there is famine in Soviet Ukraine. The important thing then is what happens next. Famine in the Soviet Union as a result of collectivization was fairly common. By June of 1932, around a million and a half people in Kazakhstan had already starved to death as a result of collectivization. People in southern Russia were also starving at that moment as a result of collectivization. The thing that was specific about Ukraine was that Stalin defined what happened in Ukraine as political. He said, this is the result of Ukrainian nationalists, Ukrainian provocateurs. This proves that Ukrainians in particular are disloyal and Ukrainians in particular are deserving of punishment. This, one of the statements that Cardinal Initzer made in his declaration of October 1933 was very true. He said, millions of people in Ukraine died and they need not have died. That is correct. Had decisions been taken differently in autumn of 1932, a few hundred thousand Ukrainians would have died instead of about four million. So what happens in 1932 
is that Soviet policy takes a specific and unmistakably murderous turn against the Republic of Soviet Ukraine. Let me mention a few of these policies. One of them is that the border between Soviet Ukraine and the rest of the world was fortified. That had already happened. It's going to be very difficult to escape to Poland or to Romania. The second is that the borders between Soviet Ukraine and the rest of the Soviet Union were sealed. So if you were inside Soviet Ukraine, you could not, you could not flee to Soviet Belarus or Soviet Russia. A third is that the peasants were forced to stay in the villages. Um, people were denied the papers they would need to go and beg in the city. So the horrible, the almost unimaginably horrible thing about these photos that you have just seen is that those were the good places. Those were the cities. That was Kharkiv. The people that you saw dying were the very small percentage of peasants from the countryside who were able to make it to a city and beg and then died on the streets of the city. Or by the way, more often died in dark basements where they were locked up by the city police, places that were called the hunger barracks. What you're seeing is a small part of a small part of a small part. The huge majority of death was precisely in the countryside. Another measure that was taken specifically against Ukrainian uh, people living in Soviet Ukraine in the countryside was to take away the meat ration. Again, that sounds very abstract. The meat ration is the goat that you had that was still alive or the cow that you had that was still alive. If you, were, if you live in the countryside on a farm, that last goat or that last cow is your last way of surviving. It's the thing you keep alive for the last moment. That was taken away. Another measure which was taken was called the black list. If your collective farm failed to supply enough grain, and in these conditions this was almost impossible, you were then locked out of the rest of the Soviet economy and not allowed to trade with the Soviet economy at all. So by way of these specific measures and by way of forced requisitions, that is by way of so-called brigades coming from cities, brigades coming from elsewhere to come and forcibly take whatever was food, a situation in which hundreds of thousands of people would have died became a situation in which millions of people died by early 1933. So it's hard to know how to characterize this event, but I, I, wanna, I wanna mention a couple of things that I will develop a bit later. One has already been suggested, I think very generously, by Ambassador Sterba, which is that this isn't just mass killing, it's also mass observation of and mass participation in the dying of your students or your family, or your neighbors. This is not a kind of dying which took place quickly and privately. This is a kind of dying which took place massively and publicly, and where the calories in human bodies were something that every other human had to think about. This is a kind of dying which forced everyone to make horrifying choices. Um, in a time in European history where there were many horrifying choices, surely these were among the most horrifying choices. And in this way and others, this was a kind of killing which also destroyed a way of life. It destroyed what remained of village solidarity, family solidarity, solidarity within marriages, friendships. Whatever kind of solidarity remained was destroyed here. And in this, in this sense, this was also perhaps the purest and most radical expression of Soviet policy. Um, it's for these reasons, by the way, that Rafa Lemkin, um, a Holocaust survivor who invented the word genocide, spoke of the Holodomor as a typical Soviet genocide, not only because it killed people, but because it made a way of living impossible. The second thing which is striking about this particular event is that it was the first truly big lie in the politics of the 20th century. Other big lies will follow. 
the lie, Hitler's lie, of the Jewish international conspiracy is about to become very important. But this was a very big lie. The lie that Stalin told and that the Soviet leadership told that nothing of this kind was happening. The total denial of an event of this scale was new and is terrifying in a particular way. It adds a level, I think, to the horror to say not only did this happen, but from the very beginning, all of the individual experiences of the kind that Ambassador Streba mentioned, all of these individual human experiences were denied. But it's not just that they were denied, it's that they were characterized as lies. And it's worse than that. They were characterized as political provocations. The official line in Soviet Ukraine among communists was that the starving are provocateurs, that their bloated bellies are deliberate provocations against the Soviet regime, and that is how they are to be understood. So, I have told you what historians know now. Other historians would no doubt tell the story in a slightly different way. Um, that is the way history works. But what I've tried to do is give you what I think is a rough consensus of the history of Soviet Ukraine in 1932 and 1933. I'm telling you some things that people wouldn't have understood at the time. Um, what I'd like to do now is give you a sense of what people did know at the time, or who knew what. The first group of people who knew what happened were the diplomats. Even the Austrian diplomats, who were few and had relatively meager resources, uh, knew about the famine in Ukraine. If you read their reports, which were written directly to Dolfus, you see accurate, detailed accounts of villages. You see an estimate of total deaths, which is fairly close to the mark. But there were other diplomats who knew much more, the Italians, the Germans, and probably above all the Poles. So the Poles had a big embassy in Kharkiv, again, the city that you were just looking at. They had consulates throughout Soviet Ukraine. They had lots and lots of local informers, and they did a lot of traveling around the Republic, which means that in their reports from spring 1932 to spring 1933, you have dozens of very long accounts, very long and detailed accounts of the starvation in Soviet Ukraine. Now, that is very useful now if you want to know what happened in Soviet Ukraine. The Polish diplomats had no reason to change the story one way or another. But what, and I say this now respectfully, what diplomats know, in fact, every diplomat already knows this, what diplomats know does not necessarily translate into policy. In, in July of 1932, Poland had signed a non-aggression tre treaty with the Soviet Union. One of the consequences of this non-aggression treaty was that the Polish press did not write about mass starvation in the Soviet Union. So diplomats knew, but the fact that diplomats knew didn't mean that the world knew. Who else knew? Some journalists knew, but most of the journalists, not all, and I'll return to this, most of the journalists were forced to remain in Moscow, and most of the journalists did not report on what they knew. They gossiped about it to one another. They occasionally let a few things slip to outsiders. But most of them chose not to write simple stories about what was happening in Ukraine in order not to lose the ability to stay in Moscow and write about other things. So the fact that the journalists knew also didn't count for very much. Who were the sources then? The sources of what was really happening in the world were the refugees. The refugees were the sources. People knew in Europe what was happening in Soviet Ukraine because of the refugees from Soviet Ukraine. These came in a flood in early 1930. Then the Soviets succeeded in fortifying the border, so that there were few of them. But in May of 1933, a fairly large group of refugees from Soviet Ukraine managed to cross the Polish border into, into Poland, into what we call Galicia. 
In Galicia, as every Ukrainian will know, but I'll just explain this anyway, in Galicia, there lived um, a very large group of Ukrainians. Galicia is the territory that had belonged to the Habsburg monarchy, was added to Poland. So most Ukrainians in the world at that time lived either in Soviet Ukraine or they lived just west of that in Galicia or Volynia. They lived in Poland. So refugees from hunger made it across the border to Poland. This meant that a number of people in Poland, Ukrainians in Poland, knew what was happening. Until that time, there had, been, there had been a certain amount of doubt because without human witnesses, it's hard to know. But as of May 1933, there were sufficient records that Metropolitan Andrzej Szeptycki, for one, could issue an appeal, as has already been mentioned. But beyond that, other Ukrainian political activists began to travel around Europe on the basis of what they knew to try to explain to Europeans and others the scale of this disaster. So, and th this, this for me is very important because it's a story of people who knew the truth on the basis of what they had been told by refugees and how that was stopped, with one exception. And the one exception is the one we're talking about today. Ukrainians from Galicia were a very well organized and effective group in general. In the summer and fall of 1933, a number of them, and I'll mention in particular Milena Rudnitska, who was probably the most important, a number of them went from capital to capital, from conference to conference, to, from reporter to reporter, trying to explain the significance of this story. In September of 1933, several of them, and again the most important was Milena Rudnitska, uh, succeeded in Geneva in getting an international women's organization to recognize the Holodomor which meant that there was actually an appeal issued to all civilized women in the world to boycott Soviet goods. They succeeded in getting the League of National Minor the Congress of National Minorities to discuss the famine in Ukraine. And thanks to that, they succeeded these Ukrainians in getting an audience at the League of Nations in the end of September, 1933. This is a very significant achievement after all. The League of Nations is the heart of international governments such as it was in 1933. However, the Soviet Union was not a member. So what these Ukrainians managed to do was to get the League of Nations to meet, but in secret, and to pass a resolution, but quietly, to the effect that there was a famine in Ukraine and that the world ought to help. In practice, all this meant was communication with the Red Cross, and the Red Cross could not enter Soviet Ukraine because Soviet authorities did not allow it to do so. Which brings us to the exceptional actions that we are discussing today. Against this context of what was known, and how hard it was to say it, the actions of Archbishop Initzer stand out all the more. Because the problem wasn't just that you needed first-person accounts, you needed a few witnesses. The problem was also that uh, the Soviet Union very, very powerfully denied what was happening. And denied is too weak a word for it. If you said something in public about this, you could count on being attacked in vicious, vicious ways. Um, the, the people who did so were attacked. And now I want to mention the exceptional journalists. There were two, two. There was a man called Malcolm Muggeridge who wrote for The Guardian, who wrote several stories in March of 1933 about famine in Ukraine, not under his own name. There was one, there was one journalist who wrote about the famine in Ukraine on the basis of firsthand observation and under his own name, one. That man was Gareth Jones from Wales. In late 1933, he published a series of articles based upon firsthand observation, very close to the pictures that you just saw and had them published in the Western press. This made a great deal of difference, just one, just one made a great deal of difference. Um, but he was, of course, attacked by his fellow journalists. He was attacked by the Soviet Union. And in 1935, he was murdered. In 
Anyway, we are just about uh, out of time here. We do plan to reach out to uh, Dr. Timothy Snyder at Yale and author Ann Applebaum to see if we can coax one of them into telling us more about both 1933 and 2022. We're also extremely keen to bring Michael Trachtman back on this program to talk about what is going on at the United States Supreme Court. The arguments in the case of Moore versus Harper went forth on December 7th, and there seems to be a wide variety of opinions on how the justices are likely to rule on that decision. We certainly want to hear from Mr. Trackman on that. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. This has been Radio Parallax. We will be here next week and hope that you will be as well. We'll see you then. 